Good morning. Well, yes, this morning we are beginning a new series to help us become more informed on the gifts of the Spirit, and we'll begin this series with laying some important foundations, our prerequisites, so to speak, that will give us some context and background into the Holy Spirit, His person, and His power, and His presence. Then we'll look at the gifts, including the ones that have been part of our conversation for many years. But then we'll also look at uh, what have been called the supernatural or the sign gifts, though that term itself bears greater definition. Things like prophecy and tongues and miracles and discernment of spirits and deliverance, crazy things like that. Those have not been so much a part of our conversation. This scripture really gives the reason why we're doing this. 1 Corinthians 12, 1, Paul said, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. That really is the heart of this series. And on top of that, in the challenging climate that we live in, we need all of the gifts And to help lost people find Jesus, we need every ounce of power that is available to us. I've called this opening message prisms. Now, this word prisms has multiple definitions. And I I got a little confused because the one that comes up immediately on a search is something from the world of geometry called a poly. Hedron or polyhedron. I don't even know how to say it. Now, I also did not realize how popular this term prism is. I I found the following entities all called prism or with the name prism in it. A steakhouse. A church. A tool used by the NSA to collect electronic data. Now that I've said it, it's probably happening right now. Shut off your phones. A boutique in Seattle, a music venue, a food pantry, a nonprofit newsroom, a climate group, a pay your bills app, business software, a health screener. And my favorite, this company with Prism in its name is working on, quote, a set of algorithms designed specifically to create degenerate primers for the application and sequencing of short viral genomes while maintaining sample population diversity. I I wasn't sure I should say that in case it was something dark and sinister. Degenerate? I looked a little further and it has something to do with allergies and infectious diseases and was funded by Bill and Melinda Gates. So it can't be all that bad, (laughs) can it? (laughs) But all that to say, here is the definition I was aiming at, prism, a medium that distorts, slants, or colors whatever is viewed through it. We all carry assumptions about the world and what is real. And those assumptions are often unspoken or unconscious. They are like prisms through which we see. 
Now, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 17. It's page 822 in the the chair Bible. As you're looking, I just want to give you the outline to help you to follow this morning. Three things we'll cover, three movements. First is the disciples' prism, and then our prism, and finally our prism and spiritual gifts. So why don't you stand? And let's read, I'll read this passage. I'm going to read verses 14 through 20, and then we'll pray. Okay? And when they, and the they is Peter, James, John, and Jesus. When Peter, James, John, and Jesus came to the crowd, a man came up to him and and kneeling before him said, Lord, Have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to him, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly before you this morning, and we ask you to open up our eyes to see this morning who you are and the power that you represent, Father, the awesome, infinite power that comprises who you are, Thank you that the Holy Spirit is your empowered presence working in our lives and in our world. Father, we long to see you this morning and we long for your presence here. We long for the glory of your goodness, your infinite goodness that through your Spirit actually lives in us. Father, we pray that you'd open up our hearts to believe and to see this morning, to recognize the prisms by which maybe some of us operate under. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So what's happening here? Jesus, James, and Peter, and John have just come down from the mountain And there on the mountaintop, Jesus had spoken with Moses and Elijah. This was the moment when Jesus was transfigured. His clothes became brilliant white and his face shone like the sun. And the presence of God the Father hovered over them through a cloud. And he spoke audibly to them saying, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So when these four came down from this electric experience... They were greeted by absolute chaos. Mark's rendering of the same story includes the other disciples. The remaining disciples were arguing with the teachers of the law. 
Why couldn't your disciples drive out this demon? And caught in the crossfire of this is a desperate and disappointed father. He expected the disciples to be able to heal his son. And Jesus' response is startling. It's not as we might expect. He didn't say, hmm, nice try, you guys. You, you did your best. I know casting out demons is hard. I'll, I'll, I'll handle it from here. Rather, he says, you faithless and twisted generation. Is he speaking to the crowd or to the disciples? Well, my conclusion is yes and yes. And nobody's exempt from this rebuke. You are faithless, or other versions say unbelieving, and you are twisted, meaning you have strayed or turned aside. Now, the idea of generation leads itself to the suggestion that this is not a new problem. As a matter of fact, Jesus seems to have the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy in view, where through Moses, or there where Moses rebuked his generation with essentially the same words. Now, we cannot escape this troubling conclusion that the disciples, even though they had spent so much time with Jesus, were entrapped by the spirit of their age, a culture of unbelief. So Jesus has the boy brought to him. And Jesus then interacts with the father and Mark the Gospel of Mark's version gives us that conversation. Uh, Mark 9, 21 through 24, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. One of the most simple and yet profound prayers in all the Bible. Jesus responds by casting out the demon. And the boy is healed instantly and Jesus restores him to the father. Argument settled. Luke's version of the story adds the response of the crowd that they were all amazed at the greatness of God. It appears even the skeptical teachers of the law were silenced. So the disciples, when they get time alone with Jesus, ask him, why couldn't we drive it out? And he says, because your faith is so little. And Mark adds that this kind can only come out through prayer. Now, look at where Jesus goes on this lesson of faith. Look back at verse 20, if you would. We have to recognize here, this is a play on words. It's a little bit humorous, to be honest, because Jesus says, oh, you have little faith, and then he points out and he says, you can have faith the size of a mustard seed, and it will move mountains. Where's the irony? The mustard seed was their smallest known seed. What is the point? It's not the size of your faith that is the problem. 
It is the object of your faith. Your faith can be as small as a mustard seed. Yet if God is the object of your faith, you can move mountains or, in other words, do things not naturally possible. Now, we are left to ponder. This is a bit confusing, right? This is a bit confusing because Jesus did not go off to pray for several hours and then return all prayed up and ready to go. How is that? When he says that this kind can only come out by prayer, we can only conclude Jesus is talking about a posture of the heart of his being in constant prayer, a humility where one stays in continual dependence on the Father. In another place, Jesus called this posture abiding in the vine. Paul just simply called it pray without ceasing. Further, we are left to conclude that the disciples thought that they could do battle with these demons on their own strength and terms without the supernatural power of God. They could do it without either the present action of prayer or an ongoing posture of prayer. They seem to have neither. And notice as well, Jesus assumes that if we have faith, we will pray. Now, we can pray without faith. Prayer can be an empty religious exercise. But you cannot have faith without prayer. So, where is the learning point here for us in this story? It's this. These disciples were influenced by their surrounding culture. Because of that influence, the object of their faith, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had been reduced, made small, rendered powerless. And if we were to study the surrounding passages in the Gospels, rich, I mean incredibly rich stories of faith, we would see that while Jesus praises the Gentiles who get it, the very people Jesus came for, the Jewish nation, no longer believe in a God who could split the seas wide open. Okay? Let's look at one more passage about this influence, this spirit of the age. Turn to Matthew 16. I don't have the page number, but just be a few pages back from 822. Matthew 16, verse 5. Here's the story. When they, it says Jesus and the disciples, went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussing this among themselves, they discussed it among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. Now keep in mind, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And Jesus has just fed the 4,000 plus a few other amazing miracles sprinkled in there. And when the disciples say through hushed voices, it's because we forgot the snacks. What prism are they looking through? It's a physical prism. It's restricted by the world they can see with their physical eyes. But what is Jesus talking about? 
spiritual influences. He's looking through a spiritual prism. He is warning them against the influences of their own culture. And what is the metaphor that he uses? Just shout it out. What's the metaphor he uses? Yeah, yeast. Some of you have baked with yeast. How does yeast work? It spreads slowly, and it spreads imperceptibly. You don't know what's going on. It goes undetected until it has pervaded the entire loaf. You see, theirs was a community, the disciples, theirs was a community with the Bible, the Old Testament. Yet God was rendered powerless through the influence of one, the Sadducees. The Sadducees, in that day, they were the privileged. They were the leading families of the nation, the merchants, priests, aristocrats. They were interested in maintaining their position and wealth. Cutting and pasting from the five books, first five books of the Bible, they actually wrote the supernatural power of God out of the Scriptures. Jesus said this of the Sadducees, Matthew twenty two twenty nine: You are in error because you do not know the Scripture or the power of God. How about the Pharisees? What was their influence? Well, the Pharisees were entrapped by something different. They were entrapped by self-righteousness and by legalism. Driven by the fear of compromise, they fiercely clung to this foundational false belief, and it affected everything. And here's how that false belief read. Acceptance from God and forgiveness from God could only be achieved through obedience to God. You know, that belief slowly but surely engenders spiritual pride. And if you're like me, I have felt its slow, slow creep in my life so many times. And when we are spiritually proud, God actively opposes us. He will actively oppose you. 1 Peter 5 says, in essence, he will put on his full battle array against you when you are spiritually proud. Jesus said this of the Pharisees. He said to them, John 8, 42, if, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I have come from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Prism. Because you are unable to hear what I say. Unbelief. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the cultural influences this is the disciples' prism, the medium that slants and distorts what they see. So what is the learning point for us? What's the learning point for us? What are the influences in our culture that we must resist? What is our prism? Now, I, I recognize there's many answers to this question, but we're focused this morning on the particulars of unbelief. What prisms do we carry unconsciously that undermine our recognition of the power of God? Now, if I could, those of you who know me, 
you know that I'm a little bit of a history geek, all right? And maybe this next part of our message, five to ten minutes, will only interest history geeks. But stay with me if you could, because it's really important. Again, I'm answering the question, what's the spirit of our age? Okay? So, you ready? Here we go. Okay, without delving too deep into the history of the world. Oh, boy. You, you know that before the Enlightenment, people believed in, they assumed, a world that was enchanted with the unseen and supernatural. It was assumed. Actually, the word supernatural was never even became a word. It was never even used until the distinction was made in the Enlightenment between the natural and supernatural. It's a really interesting point. In the pre-Enlightenment era, there was God or gods above us. There were angels and demons among us. There were not scientific explanations for why it rained or stormed or the sun came up or the sun set. And there were miracles or at least the divine activity or inactivity of the God or the gods that people worshipped. Mechanical laws did not dictate the movement of the earth or moon or stars. Of course, this all changed in the post-enlightenment landscape. There's now an explanation for everything or virtually everything. So with this knowledge, the gods or the God became expendable for some. He was no longer needed. What we can see and touch is all there is. There is no supernatural being or no angels or demons. If there is a God, he, she, or it is practically unknowable and is withdrawn from the world. As if he, she, or it just set the clock running and then withdrew. Now the technical word for all of this is materialism. The physical, material world is all there is and all that we can know. Now, big point, materialism has some stepchildren, okay? Did you get that? Just stay with me for a little bit more yet. Materialism has some stepchildren. From materialism eventually came the influence of pragmatism. If you don't understand pragmatism, you, you should. In an article by Tim Chalice, he wrote that pragmatism is rooted in the teachings of men like John Stuart Mill, who influenced philosophers like John Dewey, father of our education. Dewey applied pragmatism to education, and then another man, William James, applied pragmatism to religion. These men taught that the way to determine truth was to examine practical results. Pragmatism was the mindset that helped pr propel the Industrial Revolution. Chalice quotes uh, uh, James Montgomery Boyce in applying pragmatism to industry. Boyce wrote this, The goal in industry is to find the fastest, least expensive way of producing products and getting things done. Pragmatism has improved standards of living for millions who now enjoy the benefits of home ownership, adequate clothing, indoor plumbing, and abundant food. Chalice goes on, few of us would object 
to the many benefits pragmatism has brought us. When we visit the local big box store to purchase the second-rate furniture, we're not going to say any names, and cheap electronic goods for only a fraction of what it would cost to hire an expert to build them for us, we are experiencing the benefits of industrial pragmatism. Tim Chalice said the philosophy of pragmatism is deeply rooted in our Western mindset, i.e. prism. What is pragmatism? It is the doctrine that practical consequences are the criteria of knowledge and meaning and value. What does this say about truth? What does this say about truth? Truth is determined by consequences. Okay? Whether something is right or wrong, good or bad, is primarily dependent on results. To put it simply, if it works, it's true. The goal of education, for example, is not to help you discern morally right from wrong, to be a morally virtuous person, which was the goal in the pre-enlightenment world of education. Now the goal of education is to help you become a productive citizen, to find a vocation that works for you. How about religion? If religion makes you happy, if it works for you, then by all means, believe it. It doesn't matter if it's objectively true or not. The question is, does it work for you? Okay, are you with me? You understand the role and influence of pragmatism? Applied to the business world, pragmatism is all about the right technique, all about the right style of leadership. Os Guinness said that what counts in the rationalized world is efficiency, predictability, quantifiability, productivity, the substitution of technology for the human, and from first to last, control over uncertainty. Ah, now we have found it, haven't we? The magic elixir. Control over uncertainty in pragmatism. Isn't that the tempter? Isn't that the seducer? Isn't that the sex appeal of pragmatism? Control over uncertainty. You know, in the pre-enlightenment world of devils and angels, men and women sought to control the future through sorcerers and magic. In the modern world, it's sought through quality control, risk management, and insurance of every kind. Now hear me out. I am not suggesting these things are wrong. But I mention them as symbols of how much controlling uncertainty has come to define us. It is a value driven deep within us, the need to control. It's assumed. It's unconscious. We don't even think about its influence over us. What are the ways that pragmatism impacts us? How does pragmatism impact us? Well, first, pragmatism propels us to get to the bottom line what works, what prospers us. In pragmatism, success becomes everything. In our culture at large, success has become a god. 
Success over virtue. Self-interest over sacrifice. Individualism over community has become the prism through which we see life. Individual success is worth sacrificing everything for. It's in our foreign policy. Putting America's interests first outweighs the prism of what is morally right and wrong. It's in the dark side of our economic policy, which is built on self-interest rather than a responsibility to others. Secondly, pragmatism impacts our prism through which we think about and see leadership. Leadership is more about doing things. Leadership is more about doing things than being a certain kind of person. This is what Tim Suttle wrote in an article on this subject. I, I, I couldn't review everything he's written, but I did appreciate his thoughts on this subject. Tim Suttle wrote, Pragmatic leadership is about doing certain things, not being a certain kind of person. Pragmatic leadership's most consistent outcome isn't even growth. It is anxiety. And here he talks about particularly leadership within the church. The pursuit of ministry greatness exerts a crushing pressure on the local church and produces a consuming anxiety in its leaders, especially pastors. And I think as we look around the church landscape, we know this is true. He also said this very, very interesting way of say, saying it, that pragmatism is the church's kryptonite. So, I've already begun to bleed now into, you know, we've talked about the disciples' prism, we're talking about our prism, and now we're talking about how we, I've talked about how pragmatism has impacted the general culture, and now I'm beginning to describe how pragmatism affects the local church. How does pragmatism affect our church and the local church? Well, it occurs when churches value ministry success in terms of size and perceived influence rather than faithfulness to Scripture. There are beliefs in the Bible that, I'm fairly confident of this, that if we ignored them or if we silently dropped them, I am quite confident that it would result in greater ministry and even evangelistic success, at least as measured by today's size and fatuated metrics. The building materials of pragmatism are strategies and models and techniques drawn not from Scripture but from the world. Because we can become, we can become dizzied with success like everyone else. We can mimic what works without scriptural reflection. Church leaders with an unhealthy drive for success are susceptible but so are church members when they expect their church to automatically emulate the success of the church down the street. When we uncritically adopt success, the perception of it, as the core of our identity, rather than pleasing Jesus, our heart and our values are no different than the world's. And when that happens, we can offer no real alternative. If we are only an agent of the dominant culture, 
We are indistinguishable. Why should anyone join? Why should anyone even stay? Pragmatism, the prism through which it sees, does not need the power of God. Why? Because self is at the center of the stage. Spirituality, even church life, is one more resource that I consume for my self-fulfillment. In this environment, the gospel does not have the power to uproot self-interest, success, or individualism. And when these three lie unchallenged, any power that you will need already resides within yourself. Why look to a God, why look to God to accomplish your agenda? And if you think that I can use God to accomplish my self-first goals, God will not play that game forever. Now, He is in every way gracious, but He will not abandon His glory to become your personal water boy. Friends, this is the spirit of our age, and if unchecked, it's our prism. Again, a medium that distorts, slants, our colors, whatever is viewed through it. Okay, now let's get to where the rubber meets the road. Let's get to, let's get to where it hits the fan. How has pragmatism affected me and this church? We have told the story multiple times how about five or six years ago, we, a collection of leaders, admitted to ourselves that we've been influenced by pragmatism. A group of leaders were discussing this question. As we have led the church, have we become more pragmatic than spirit-led? The probing question was promoted by an outside review from a trusted friend. He did a series of interviews, including some of you in this room, I'm sure. I still to this day don't know who, who he interviewed. I was completely blind to it. Actually, all the, all the pastors were, barring uh, Pastor Nick, were blind to these interviews. And the question that surfaced from his interviews is that, is there really room for God to show up on a Sunday morning? Was there any space in our life groups for him to show up and surprise us? To disrupt our agendas. Few of those interviewed could recall a time where the presence of God showed up in a distinct and undeniable way. Now, I am not suggesting there have never been, I'm not suggesting there have never been distinct God moments in our church life, where God has shown up in power. There certainly have been. Through all of our five decades of existence, there have been salvations and moving baptisms and, and transformative messages and counseling experience where God gives insights and holy moments in times of prayer, powerful Experiences on mission trips, etc., etc. And indeed, there has been an experience of God in many non-dramatic ways that 
many of you could testify to. Yet, there was a restlessness in us. Something still seemed to be adrift in our gatherings. Thinking of our actual experience of the presence of God. It was just rare and uncommon. Had we programmed the power of God out of church life? Had we adopted a vision of success that produces or results in leadership models that are taken more from the world than the scriptures? In the pressure to succeed or in the drive to avoid conflict, has fear caused us to exert too much control to get the outcome that we thought makes the most sense? By the way, a little tidbit here. If you haven't learned this lesson yet, you can't control anybody or anything. <laughs> if you haven't learned that yet, you, you will. Only thing you can control is yourself, your own attitudes and response. You cannot control anybody or anything else. And once you learn that, it's really freeing. In all of those things, we were potentially nullifying faith and nullifying the power of God. Now, I don't think there are absolute answers to these questions, 100% yes or 100% no. But I think in the age that we live in, in the age of pragmatism, these are the right questions to ask as we seek to fight a culture of unbelief. Okay? All right. So where have we been this morning? We, we began way, way, way back, way, way back with the disciples' prism, their culture of unbelief. We looked at next um, our age, the prisms we look through, and how unbelief manifests itself in our everyday world, materialism and the stepchild pragmatism. We looked at how pragmatism affects the general culture, how it affects the church culture, and finally, how it also has interfaced and affects this church. Let's conclude with just a few thoughts on the final point of our outline. And I only have a couple paragraphs here, so Caleb, uh, you and Summer can come on up. Why is this message a prerequisite for our series? Why is this message a prerequisite for our series? Because as we learn about the spiritual gifts, we may find that our minds, mine included, drenched in the materialistic, pragmatic spirit of our age, might have difficulty weighing these messages objectively. Now, of course, we want you to search the Word and not simply accept what we conclude about the meaning of the Bible. But what we are all trying to do is to remove our biases and prisms so that we can get at the heart of what God is saying. Particularly as we look at some of the, again, so-called supernatural gifts. They all are supernatural. They might feel strange, or they might feel out of place, or just weird in our modern anti-supernatural world. Some 
may stretch what we believe about the power of God. Or you might ask, hey, how can we really grow? How can we be successful if what we believe seems out of step with a culture soaked in rationalism? You know, that was one of my unrealized obstacles, one of my unrealized prisms in thinking about these issues. This morning, I would simply, for a takeaway, I just would simply ask you to ponder this. This is my only ask this morning. My only ask is that you ponder this this point, is that our prisms impact our capacity to see with spiritual eyes and to detect where God is working. More than anything else, Linworth, friends, brothers and sisters, more than anything else, we want to work where God is working. If God ain't there, we don't want to be working there. We want to work where God is working. And so I'm asking you, are you willing to examine, as we have been trying to do, are you willing to examine your prisms? I'm going to come back up in a few moments and actually lead us in communion, but this next song is a prayer. Many of our songs are prayers. And as you sing it this morning and think about the words, I would ask you to turn it into its meaning, into a prayer. For more of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let's sing together.